and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchot. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 41 through 45 of Mason and Dixon. Uh, Will, would you summarize those chapters for us, please? So this section starts with a new twist. Wade LaSpark is taking the reins of the tale. He shares his ponderings on the supremacy of business while trekking to the Maryland salon of an infamous gambler and former nobleman, Lepton to engage in some of that holy trade known as arms dealing. Apparently, while he's dozing there, awaiting the return of morning, our leading pair get lost in the vicinity and take refuge in the palace of debauchery. They are overwhelmed, disheartened by the sound smells and sheer luminosity of the interior, but thanks to the pitch black, unnavigable beyond, they remain. They are mysteriously and instantly reintroduced by a hidden announcer, and as they anxiously prepare to do some good old hobnobbing, a notorious policeman, Dasp, pops up to warn them that within these walls traffic the sorts who treat astronomers as little more than toy extensions of their telescopes, that it would be best for them all if their focus were upon discretion and, above all, dullness. He's subsequently disappointed in the upstarts when Lady Lepton, apparently a brief youth, brief youth acquaintance of Dixon, comes to greet her guests. Dixon artfully paints the scene of her as an independent child of a local minor family, riding into Raby Castle one day, where Dixon as a boy would haunt. We're led to expect a similar outcome as Dasp predicts, leading him to leave the conversation as soon as possible, but she rather responds with rotation. He's surprised to see this free-thinking lass grown into the wife of such a notorious ne'er-do-well, though we're told she may have so for the purpose of social networking access to backroom clubs. The Lord himself makes his appearance, sharing his riches to rags to riches tale before jumping into some sort of a bit on the teleology of the great, the great chain of being. Dasp humoring him hints at a demonic prisoner of sorts held by it, and Dixon's in to Mason's chagrin, imagining it as a surveyor's, surveyor's chain. The master of the house is no stranger to coded meaning and perceives his wife's partiality to the recent guest as she discusses the stove fuel that unites Durham and the colonies, and soon all move to the shifting trends in bodices and bustle. Dixon and Mason are met by a slave dressed in opera soprano lace they both recognize and tells them of the widows of Christ, supposedly a convent dedicated to training a particularly vicious of sexual servant. Apparently, this is enough to let on to Mason that the captain is a French spy. The night goes late and the pair wager more than they should. Realizing they're now indebted to their employers for their mistake, they estimate how Lepton could have cheated them and size up the objects in their room to take for revenge. Dixon somehow decides that an enormous cast iron tub is the right mark. Well, demonstrating some of that weird Geordie magic he promised for the Calvert setting. In a moment, he has the tub rotated on three axes and halfway out the door. He tells Mason to hold it right this way. He'll be back in just a minute, two tops, and dashes off to conspicuously have a smoke outside. Minutes later, the prank victim hears some chatting, sounding like Lady Lepton and Dixon, then more sounds of a different sort. He loudly complains, seeming to bring silence in his wake, and then a strange little natural philosopher named Vohm appears to investigate the tub, which he reveals has been balanced on a magnetic axis, creating a signal dam nearly Earth's third pole in power. 
he blathers on about how he's on the run from vigilantes in Philadelphia, some young idiot having electrocuted himself on Vohm's pet electric eel, and could really go for some coffee right now. Mason agrees and explains his predicament. The professor analyzes the situation with his multivariate compass and helps the astronomer to set the tub down. In thanks, he offers the protection of joining their company. Dixon reappears and they begin to navigate the tub out of the Rodato again, when the familiar slave reappears. She confirms her identity as Ostra, flirting with Mason, and disappears around a corner into a life described as glamorously as one of chattel could be. They pursue her, and Lespark finally makes his appearance in a room otherwise empty beside the couch he's dozing on, and a gun with an inverted star on the wall. They bicker over its providence, awaking the salesman, who describes how to identify it as an American make of unknown specificity, though clearly built for the purpose of hunting man. Mason is concerned with the symbol of the adversary, while Dixon with the baser nature of the object, and Wade jovially discusses it all with them. He promises not to squeal on their game, and they part. They meet the eel, Felipe, who was purchased by Vohm as El Peligroso, and is now toured as a sideshow, where he is happy to put on such diversion as lighting a cigar with loosely adhered wires. Fortunately, unfortunately, Mason has seen something which haunts him in the blinding spark, and he struggles with that otherworldly dimensions that continue to throw themselves in his path. The eel and Vohm join the party, the former taking up occupancy in the tub, and act as their compass thereon. A while later, they roll into Newark and pick up their mail. Bad news. Masculine has been appointed the new Astronomer Royal. Mason at first pretends ambivalence. Dixon knows better and tries to reason with the man. How could a baker's son have won such esteem by that crowd of social climbers and university men? Masculine's brother-in-law was Clive. He was close to the interim chair. Mason staunchly defends his right to inheritance by tragedy, having lost his loves and his mentor while in the service of Greenwich. In March, they return to the Harland estate, where the owners are bickering again, though this time with a bit more fondness. This is interrupted by the appearance of a strange man gazing into the Rose Quartz West Line marker. He is some magnetic prospector using crystals to commune with the layered being within. He believes the whole globe is studded with beacons of some sort, playing a melody across the universe as it spins through space. We're brought back to Earth with the appearance of a body jobber, offering temporary employees with incredible skill and stamina, then by a land developer. Dixon can smell the evil in him, and immediately begins formulating a plan to dispose of his body in short order. May takes him aside. A month later, delayed by snow, they get to work, establish a suitable degree of precision, begin to develop a daily process. We see a few scenes of the crew getting into the low of things, and comes the first house they are to bisect. Inside dwells a clearly unhappy couple, for immediately upon the declaration of the Maryland side of the home, Mrs. Price declares that declares that to be where she will go to disregard the validity of their marriage. They are moving the house to a double taxation, but realize that uphill is where they are married. Meanwhile, tales of the mechanical duck's prowess abound. The young men take potshots with rifles and stones, all swearing a near miss. Mason, however, continues to doubt the reality of the bird. It takes his hat for that, prompting apology. He realizes that perhaps the inventor of Okansan had been involved in the Venusian transit observation site ordainment. That maybe, just perhaps, the man thinks the duck has transmuted form to the heavenly body. Everybody backs away and Dixon realizes 
It's something Mason's been wondering about for Rebecca. They discuss Angel's posit that maybe the book is approaching the status of one, and shake her fists at the seeming invincibility of men like Clive, who encroach too far along the border between human heaven. Thank you for that. Um, so let's start with our, our general thoughts on these chapters. Uh, we just came off of five of arguably the funniest chapters uh, in the book. Uh, so it was a little bit more grounded uh, in these chapters. But what did y'all, uh, how did y'all come away from these? These are actually probably some of my favorite chapters we've read so far. Um, I think that there's a lot of very interesting stuff to get into and break down in these chapters. I mean, as we'll talk about when we get to quotes, I had a really hard time even picking a favorite quote from these chapters. I had like four or five candidates, which I usually don't. Um, I think there's interesting stuff in here about spirituality, about the the kind of path that Mason is on in his life at this point. There's there's more very entertaining stuff about the duck. Um, I love the aside where, where Pinchon just gets to use his book to talk about how much he hates land developers, which mm-hmm. shows up in, in other books of his, certainly. Um, the whole sort of very cinematic section where Dixon is is reminiscing his childhood romance, I thought was excellent. There, there's, you know, I I think there's there is a lot of plot. Like they are moving forward. We do get to see Mason and Dixon's relationship deepen and get kind of symbolized by the planting of the rose quartz, which within kind of people who believe in crystals has to do with relationships and deepening relationships. And yeah, I I. There, there's a lot of these chapters that I really liked, and I also just found them sort of a breeze to go through. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of difficulty or, or uh, challenge in parsing out some of the stuff that, that Pinchon is going through. Um, kind of, it, it makes sense that he goes from sort of a bottle episode, like we described the last five chapters, being into this sort of more um, momentum-driven section, where they, they get back out and they start... Uh, drawing the the west line, what they're they're ultimately going to be spending most of their time doing, and getting into a lot of very interesting thematic content as they do so. There's even more uh, cultural commentary on on slavery in America during this period as well, during those opening chapters. So yeah, this this is actually probably one of my favorite sections of chapters that we've gone through so far. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. This um, aside from being a, a kind of shorter set of chapters this was like just about 40 pages altogether um it definitely had a a breezier feel to it i definitely um like you said i didn't have trouble really parsing out some of the the scenes that were happening or some of the things um that pinchon was trying to get at and i mean there's certainly some uh some good discussions to be had that are that are in here yeah. Um, and I love, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Dixon's uh, backstory as, as being cinematic because that's exactly the word I would have used for that as well. It was, um, that was one of my favorite scenes, I think, in, in these five chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also there, there is some, you know, obviously we have the duck again, which is always funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I thought the, the bathtub scene was also pretty funny as well. Um, so, it, yeah, this was a good, a good kind of, easy to get through section of the book it, it not and not to dismiss it as being like light on on substance or there's certainly a lot to go over um but it was it was just more of a it had a jaunty feel that we're you know we're getting out we're they're they're moving they're they're getting things done finally um the the backstories are less and the the wackiness is less but it's still there's still a lot happening uh within here 
Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, I do think that y'all are right and that these this section is a little bit more lower stakes and um more focused on comedy than I would say probably anything else. Like, you know, Cody was talking about with the with the tub. It is pretty funny to me that they got um maybe uh like illegally or unethically screwed out of a bunch of their money and how they respond is stealing a bathtub um (laughs) which might make more sense back in the 1700s or something you know it's just not something you would think of someone doing today yeah um i mean we'll get to all of this probably later but you know i I really enjoyed the yo mama jokes Um, oh yeah (laughs) yeah. that was also a great section yeah yeah uh, and just kind of generally, this section is a little bit more, yeah, like just low stakes and just not as, there's not as much, there's not really, there's no like historical figures. Um, I guess Lepton maybe is an historical figure. But generally speaking, there's not as much focus on that. Um, one thing I did find interesting is people on the subreddit, on the pension subreddit, will point out that it can be pretty fun to follow this book in terms of who's in the room uh, while the story is being told. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is kind of interesting to me. I know I picked up on this, uh, that the most sexually explicit part of this book so far happens in this section with uh, Dixon ripping the bodice of, um, I forget mm. who, but... Um, the musical bodice, yeah. Yeah, the musical bodice, um, which I don't think would be terribly inappropriate for kids of like 10 or 12, but... I'm not. I'm not 100. They would necessarily get it fully, uh, but I do think it's interesting that that comes up when the kids are out of the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, it would be a it would be a, a scandal, a scandalous kind of thing in the 18th century. Yeah. Yeah, you know? you're you're right. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I I did enjoy these chapters a lot. You know, it, they are. There's not as much plot. I would say it's just, and um, it's a little bit more kind of. Like the we're just kind of like wandering through some some events in their life rather than like rushing through like really important stuff, which I kind of like it. It was felt like a bit of a break, I guess. Yeah, I, I see this whole section, including the the section which we finished last episode as as a, a lot of essentially the things setting up for the next half of the book. And mm-hmm. it, this is a, a really lovely moment where it's. It is slow. We are it, two of the chapters and the vast majority of the pages in this section for this episode that we've read are just them making cocktail party chatter at a at a yeah at a gambling house at like a casino. There's even joke about like the blinding lights and the you know Las Vegas or Atlantic City type stuff, and it, mm-hmm. it's just essentially background on Dixon and a little bit of fun in having mason be incorrigible and everybody else just kind of situating themselves as present for the next session and it's it's really fun because you get to meet characters like vom who is a a genuinely <laughs> bizarre little guy yeah like he just shows up in a casino and is just immediate ignores the fact that there's this man holding a bathtub and immediately goes huh <laughs> this is a huge magnet what are you doing here and my first time yeah. reading the, the reading the book i was a little confused i thought that they had already made their way outside of the hotel or not the hotel but the you know on, on in the doorway out out of the building 
And I'm just imagining this guy having walked for miles following his compass while Dixon is over philandering. <laughs> and this little professor shows up and just starts talking about how he's on the run for his life. Yeah. It, 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 it he gave me, uh, like, if, if, I, if this book were to be adapted, I would want him to be played by Christopher Lloyd and almost nobody else. Oh, that would be a good choice, yeah. I can think of one or two others but yeah he would be perfect some parts of the section i also enjoyed i mean the part with the um part of the eel is really cool yeah uh, really interesting yeah. uh just you know this guy carrying around this electric eel um using it as like a party trick or a way to like busk and make money um i also really enjoyed and this may this may end up being my my uh, quote for the for the week, but the part about the angels and how like, you know, like the stuff that they smoke is would like, you know, like you, you, you would like die if you smoked it and mm-hmm. they gamble mm-hmm. like in, in like in the billions and all that stuff. I do. I yeah. did really I did really like that. It did occur to me that it's it's kind of like a an ancient like Greek or ancient Roman way of viewing um, like, you know, celestial beings in terms of, you know, like they're like humanity, but on steroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a really amped up version of of what humans are. Yeah, I found that very interesting, and it's not a not an attitude uh, that I've, I've I can remember ever encountering before. Yeah. Well, so it opens with so in chapter forty one, um, we have the this opening, and I, I thought it was really this was well done i thought this introduction it's on this the second page of the chapter but where the ironworks is is being described and it's it was a really interesting juxtaposition because you have this whole description of how it's this great place and that that the people who are working there are just they're happy doing their work and they're doing this you know this great work it's safe it's clean all the the fumes that are in there are being vented out so no one's getting poisoned or anything like that and it's really presenting this this air of like you know this is a a great um environment that we've built kind of you know the the american dream so to speak of of Mm -hmm. you know everyone having this great job and it's you know everyone's happy and productive and they're doing all these great things but then the reverend in his journal not you know not to anyone else but like kind of internally is, is saying well yeah but what you're not seeing is that all of this is built on the back of slavery Right. And that's that's this that's the country. Like it's not, you know, yeah, it's if you zoom in on this whole thing, it's just this particular ironworks, but that's what, you know, we we talked about this in an earlier episode about that dark side of America where, you know, yeah, we there's been all this great progress done and and the founding of the country and everything, but when you really dig into how that all came about and really focus on what was being done and who and who was really building it it's way darker and you know to forget that is not something that we need to be doing but it is it you know it is the way it is um but i I thought it was interesting that 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 was a comment that that cherry coke kind of kept to himself and and you know typically i think we've seen him be a little bit more vocal about those kind of things. So it it seemed a little interesting that he would just keep this in his journal and not make a point of it verbally. Definitely. And then later on in the section, he does criticize the 
the the industry of of gun manufacturing further Mm -hmm. but what he speaks is limited entirely to essentially the the practical matter of well don't you think there's a bit of a conflict of interest when people have such power who are also the ones distributing these guns and it, it it seems like he he's refusing to acknowledge the central issue in his mind at least at least in public yeah, because when he, I mean, when he writes it, I just want to read this this paragraph because I thought it was just so well written. Um, what is not visible in his rendering, journalized as a reverend to himself later, is the Negro slavery that goes on, making such no doubt exquisite moments possible. The inhuman ill usage, the careless abundance of pain inflicted, the unpriced coercion necessary to yearly profits beyond the projectings even of proud Satan. In the shadow, in the shadows where the forge's glow does not reach or out uncomforted beneath the vaporous daylights of Chesapeake, bent to the day's loads of fuel from the vanishing hardwood groves nearby, or breathing in the mephitic vapors of the bloomeries, wordlessly, and some may believe patiently, they bide everywhere, these undeclared secular terms, in the equations of proprietary happiness. That is just such a vitriolic description of how awful what was being done was done. And how, but but that's what built this country, sadly. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and Pinchon, even within the first chapter, continues to, to progress that idea when he talks about the slave orchestra and the casino. Mm-hmm. And how, even though that isn't necessarily directly related to wealth generation by means of, of like this ironworks or through labor in the country, he's still in that paragraph where he describes what the orchestra is doing is they are making the entertainment of the evening possible. So even within the, you know, extracurricular, we'll say, activities that these people get up to, you know, gambling and and sort of having a good time at a party one evening, even that environment is is made possible by the usage of slave labor. So Pinchon, within the, this first chapter, really presents a, a, a two-edged sword here where he says that it isn't just... The, the labor environment of the country and the way that wealth is being generated, it's also the cultural environment and where that wealth is then spent or redistributed through wins and losses within a casino. And just to pair the two paragraphs together, I'll read that quote where it says, Tonight's slave orchestra includes the best musicians the colonies, British and otherwise, have to offer. For the melody-maddened Iron Nabob has searched them out. A harpsichord virtuoso from New Orleans a New York viol master, pipers direct from the forests of Africa, and bought up their contracts as others might buy objects of art. The string instruments are from workshops in Cremona, the winds from France, and the music they are playing here for the guests at Castle Lepton, though at the moment little more than a suite of airs of the street and day, is nonetheless able somehow, perhaps in the unashamed prevalence of British modality, that is, Fergioid, if not Fergian, to lend weight to where it does not, in fact, ennoble even the most brainless conversation upon the great floor, which can usually be heard in his lordship's vicinity, though nowhere at the moment near Dixon, who is finding all this, to his delight, dangerously interesting. So that he's, he starts the chapter by talking about the way that you know wealth is generated using partial slave labor, and then later on, he goes on this, this sort of cultural critique of that wealth is then used to buy up contracts for slaves from not just America, but literally all over to assemble this band that makes the the uh, brainless conversation that, that creates a, a more conducive environment to gambling possible. It's another instance where he, he just 
in two very short sections illustrates something that is is deeply true and, and deeply important about the the american history and it, it gets further into the cycles of history that we talk about all the time where, where these things remain relevant even to the modern day yeah this, this well, might be this might be a little off topic but have you all heard of uh oleo by taimba jess no no it's uh taimba jess is a is a african-american poet who i think is has been award-winning um Olio was was taught in my grad school, and he time adjusted to visiting my grad school and stuff. But it's about uh, various like African American uh, slaves um, who either made it big for like jazz or in terms of like freak show type stuff, like uh, what's the like the Siamese twins and stuff who made a bunch of money while they were slaves, and um, some of them made so much money while they were slaves that they bought their own freedom and ended up buying the plantation that they were born on and stuff. Um, it just kind of, it, it addresses some of the same stuff that Kate was just talking about. So it just occurred to me to bring up. It's interesting. I want to say it won a Pulitzer Prize, but yeah. Well, because there's also, there's a, I, I, I want to say it was Sonny Rollins had a song called Aleo, and then it was later reworked by a number of different jazz musicians I, I know grant green did a version of it um i don't know if his was f i want to say sonny rollins this was first because that would make sense chronologically um but i'm gonna have to look into that because I'm, I'm curious if one when when was the poem written do you know uh well it's a book it came out the in, book, i'm sorry yeah i think it came out in 2015 or 2016 oh, so way after okay uh, yeah. i'm curious it's, if it's, it's inspired by the okay huh i'll have to look into that um well, something that so and and to kind of go back to the, um, the the gambling, where the gambling is taking place. I, I found it interesting that the when Mason and Dixon come to that cabin, um, it's described in the same way that um, Edgewise's uh, carriage was described, where it's larger on the inside than it would seem to be on the outside, mm -hmm. and I think there's a kind of um, horror element to that. Typically, when I, when I hear something like that, the first thing my mind jumps to is the house in House of Leaves, which sure. really utilized that that idea to create a sense of horror um, within the book. And so I, I get the feeling that's the same kind of purpose here is to instill this sense of otherworldliness on on the location that we're in, be it the carriage, because that scene with Edgewise was pretty... Um, intimidating uh and then you have this scene now which is expressing some other kind of horrors so i, I found that a really interesting kind of reusage of that um that image yeah and i think there's another potentiality in using it here where you're supposed to kind of consider the abilities that wealth gives you as far as what you're capable of buying or what you're capable of using that money towards. One of the things that I had thought about in, in the usage here is this idea that if you are in, in one of these great positions of privilege where you have capital, in this case derived from slavery, that puts you so high above the the average individual, even in the 1700s, you know, what would what would that be capable of? You know, would you be able to somehow purchase these impossible things simply because that's what, what the money affords you? Certainly, we live in a day and age now where people who have that much money seemingly are able to 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 do things with it that that should be impossible or or, or may sound that way. Um, so that was the other the other reason that I, I felt like it it was potentially included here that you know in describing how large this place is and the the inherent horrors of this band made out of you know slaves from from multiple colonies being present, 
that that in and of itself is is an indictment of of what you're capable of of accomplishing with great wealth too yeah well and and to piggyback on that um i i really as and i have to preface it by saying i don't like leptin uh as a character obviously he's not supposed to be likable but i do like the way his um kind of his backstory was summarized um with mm-hmm. the his initial you know having a lot of wealth losing it all uh stupidly uh, misunderstanding people telling him to uh what was it step off the edge of the world and thinking that they meant to go to america which he yeah. does uh and then works his way up to the point of obtaining slaves and using them to regain his fortune but i specifically like within that whole uh description of his his backstory i specifically like that he is uh he's described as um well there's there's a line i'm sorry that says drive the african slaves as basically as a creature of his sort might be expected to do and i just really appreciated the the dehumanizing of leptin and Mm -hmm. stripping him of of being a human and basically making him a creature because of the awful things that he engaged in to reobtain his wealth um yeah and I, i think it's important that that's done because i think a lot of times with with authors that are dealing with that topic, they tend to not really dehumanize slave owners in the way that they really need to be dehumanized. Well, I think it's especially effective in what you're talking about because it is, it is drawn in sharp contrast to Dixon's childhood romance Mm -hmm. where he is directly confused how she could end up being with somebody so ugly. So it isn't, it isn't just necessarily the fact that he has become dehumanized, but also there is something physically repulsive about his presence that that is confusing as to why somebody that dixon you know used to love or someone who is who is considered to be this great beauty would even be around so it it goes so far as not just a transformation of of you know his his state as as human but also his physical appearance as well which i appreciated as far as an inclusion but you're right like i i don't like lepton as a person but that whole section as far as how it's written is very compellingly um you know actually paced out and written it's it's one of the the better sections from this from this particular portion and and as a brief aside just because luke had brought it up when the word fuligen was used um i also noticed that that other gene wolfisms from the book of the new sun reused where he's referred to as both a journeyman and a master which are ranks in the torturers guild so that came to mind as well as he's going on um, this kind of descent into somebody who literally becomes a torturer of men as a slaveholder. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't picked up on that actually. Something I, I, I noticed on it is the, the, this is, it's, it's a tangential connection, but something about, I, I, it's, I can't seem to find a uh, an actual Lord Lepton who resembles this character, but I might be, you know, I'm not a historian doing brief research, could be wrong. But there is, there was a historical um, businessman from America named Timothy Dexter, who was not told that he had to go off the edge of the earth to escape his debts, but he was suggested to ship coal to Newcastle. Um, which is an idiom in Britain based on the fact that Newcastle is where you mine coal, um, who did ship coal to Castle and happened to make a fortune off of it. And it just seemed like this uh, uh, leptin reminded me a lot of 
such such colorful characters as did inhabit america in this time period yeah i i tried to find something on lepton too and i couldn't i i got the feeling he was more kind of an amalgam of of different um historical figures or just that type of person at that time yeah yeah one thing that can confuse me about um i think it's the first two chapters in this book is um like the Lepton Castle, I want to say that there's a castle in England. I forget if the if it's the Pynchon Wiki or that listserv um, was talking about it, but I do think that there's some type of castle that seems uh, that has that name, and then the, but there isn't one in America. And here in America, you know, I can't think of. I could think of a few different buildings I've seen on the internet that are kind of castle-like. Um, but in terms of like the classic, you know, English or not English, European, um, you know, type of castles, we don't really have those here. So I was kind of confused as to what, um, you know, because so much of this book is is so historically based and so mm-hmm. like, you know, like uh, accurate to the time period that I was a little bit confused by that. Well, there is the Philadelphia Luptons, who are. Uh adjacently relevant to this book but i don't think they have any connection to this yeah the only thing i was able to find is that lepton is a village in west yorkshire in in england lepton is also an elementary particle so it's probably mostly a pun on that but you know Mm -hmm. i don't know brett if you if you know let us know (laughs) (laughs) You're, you're the expert on on that and so hopefully you Maybe have stumbled across something of a connection there. Um, I did want to get y'all's opinion on uh, a couple of things that the the pinch on wiki was unclear on. Um, the first being on page four fourteen. Uh, there's the mention of climbers discourse. the The pinch on wiki literally just had question marks um, for that. I did a little bit of digging on it, and I found a paper from somewhere that that actually did some research on climbers discourse. Um, and it, what it ultimately boiled down to is that it's, it's the, the communication between rock climbers, um, that they are using to help each other navigate, uh, tricky situations when they're, when they're climbing to, you know, telling each other like, Hey, look out for this, or there's a a thing jutting out here, or there's a foothold here. And that would make sense in the situation because the two of them are, are essentially helping each other navigate through this social situation that would otherwise be awkward for them. Um, so that, that was really the only thing I could find. I, I mean, it seems to, to, you know, kind of click in there, but I don't yeah. know if you had something else on that. I just took it as essentially small talk. I, I took it as mm-hmm. these are social climbers. They're about to enter a room full of social climbers. They are getting ready. They are readying themselves. Mm-hmm. Dixon in particular is readying himself for climbers discourse. That's how I took it as well. Yeah. It is a, it is an interesting neologism, though. Yeah. The other is, on the same page, just uh, two paragraphs down, the, the mention of Chers of Stroud. Um, the wiki is unclear on that as well, but they, they suggest it could mean electors. I was wondering if it was referring to churlish individuals, given the, the context of what they're talking about. I, you know, I just thought it said... So I, I just assumed it meant churlish individuals. But I have no clue. What, See, that's what I thought, too. What the heck does a ch- What is a ch- chur? 
That's yeah, that's the wiki just says it's uh, it, it refers to them as electors and then question mark. So I don't know, but that doesn't really make sense. So like Churlish, the idea of it being churlish individuals would make more sense in the context of what's going on. I don't know why it would be electors, but I don't know. Well, there's the whole thing with elect versus preterite in his works in general. So True. it's just like amongst the, the people who are in power, he is known, I guess. I don't know. If anyone knows, anyone listening or or Brett may even be able to shine some light on it. I don't know. But that one just kind of struck me as well. Um, I think that was everything I had for this chapter. Oh, no, no, no. There's a whole great chain of being discussion that I wanted to to go over with y'all. Um, so, yeah, I, I, this was a really interesting conversation that took place uh, between pages 417 and 418. Um, and, and again, this is something where the I, I could see what the pinch on wiki was getting at, but I kind of took it differently um, where they're referring to the where the, the specifically the line, perhaps it is a helix. Um, they do mention that it is probably, it may be referring to DNA, but it also may be a snake. I, the way I read that, and I'm curious to see what y'all's opinions are on this as well. Um, with specifically the mention of, uh, something not part of the great chain itself, but fully as enormous, something that is, that must be kept in restraint, which we pray may only be sleeping when throughout the chain's vast length it is felt now and then to stir. Uh, yes, cries his lordship with a strange shiver, flexing, writhing, perhaps beginning to snarl a bit, as one might suppose, deep within its breast. I took that, going with the, D the idea of it being referring to DNA as the, the sort of evil that is inherent within humans in our DNA, um, specifically because I was, I don't remember where I was reading it, but I was reading something not too long ago that was kind of discussing how uh, humans are really the only uh animal organism that is is capable of senseless evil um not just you know there are animals in nature that obviously that kill their own species but it there the the level of senseless cruelty um is is only in humans and so i took i think that was in my mind when i read that specific passage and i was thinking maybe that was a reference to that sort of embedded within our dna yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's important that this particular, or most of it is, is instigated by Lepton, who is certainly an evil individual. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're, you're onto it there with, with the inherent evil that is within humanity. I think the important point is this idea, like, we don't always feel it, but occasionally we do. Like, this, this concept of occasionally we, we, we feel the chain, you know, holding us in, like that, that kind of language that's being used there. Where where I took that from, and I could be way off base here, is actually a reference to to slavery being in in bondage and in and you know in chains as as is common imagery used when when talking mm -hmm. about slavery, and this idea, the fact that that Dixon briefly lost the ability to to see the slaves because he was around them so much, this concept that you know the inherent evil in humanity and the inherent ability to accept evil in humanity can make us forget about the chains that are literally around some of us until every once in a while when we're spurred on by it as they suddenly are in the beginning of these chapters. That was what I took out of that. 
And the fact that you kind of have this slave master talking about it seems to be kind of him poking fun at the inherent depravity of his own actions. But because of the fact that he's described as being less than human or something else, he no longer occupies the same point in the great chain of being, so therefore can kind of scrutinize the other layers of it at this point. Or it's possible that he somehow believes that he's, you know, risen outside of the great chain of being and, mm-hmm. and can therefore for make observations about it from a, from a different position. That was what I took out of it personally, but I, I could be off base there. So my, my reading of that section is, basically goes like this. Leptin walks into the room and is surrounded by these astronomers and all these educated, well-to-do folks. And he's, you know, well off. He runs this casino. He's, you know, he's got slaves, but he's just kind of a guy. So he feels probably feels insecure and he's just going about how frivolous this, oh, this great chain of being, these great things that all these people are so focused on oh it's such a it's such a frivolous idea what is it even doing what's this chain even supposed to be about man (laughs) in in that kind of just generally flippant Hmm. way more as a a social criticism of this class of person and any actual value in what he says but then with captain dasp's reply about the the chaining so something that's apart from the great chain but it is being kept it, it 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 evokes you know some gnostic stuff but uh, i also see it as we we have two different reactions well we have three with dixon we have three different ways of viewing the world as the great chain of being is you know a paradigm for the world um lepton who is fly by the seat of his pants gets rich because he's a scumbag and cheats people and just kind of deals with stuff he doesn't see a point to the idea of an order to the universe to him it's all whatever he gets by because he's lucky essentially and dasp for him the chain is control he he is an arm of maryland state he is an arm of the british government he is a piece of control for him that is the world and then for dixon it's horizontal it's laid out flat and it's you know that's clearly not what he means but in terms of how I read it, I think that it, it's supposed to be seen as Dixon views everybody as roughly equal. It's a chain that's just laying on the ground. You can use it to measure stuff. Uh, it's not meant to be a, wep- a weapon. It's not meant to be a restraint. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But then I do wonder. I, I don't. I don't have a strong understanding of what he would be meaning on a literal level. What is Dixon meaning when he says... Is he just joining in, like Lepton, in making fun? Is he just saying, it's a horizontal chain, I use horizontal chains, ha ha ha. Or is he actually trying to make a point? I mean, if you're, because I like where you're coming from with that. So yeah, it could be him kind of um, satirizing Lepton, kind of making fun of him, you know, and, and poking holes in his own uh, ridicule of that concept. So, I mean, that's just, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it that way, so I'm going to have to kind of stew on that, but I like that, that description. Uh, so chapter 42, um, so I, 
we talked about at the beginning of the episode how these these chapters were uh, a little bit lighter, um, but I do think there is also some of Pinchon's angriest writing in here, mm-hmm. um, specifically coming through Cherry Coke. Uh, this at the beginning of this chapter, the uh, the line that he has where he says, "What alarms me most, Wade," proceeds Reverend Cherry Coke, is the possibility of acquiring such vast sums so quickly. If a sailor may kill a bully over a sixpence, then what disproportionate mischief, including global war, may not attend the safekeeping of fortunes of millions of pounds sterling? Um, and that kind of goes back to this discussion that him and, and um, that uh, and Spark were having. But I, I see, you know, this kind of goes back again to what we've talked about with Cherry Coke possibly being uh, authorial insert from Pinchon. Um, and it would track with, with statements like that, it would kind of track given you know, his, his themes and his work before this. Um, but it's such a great, just a great response from Cherry Coke. And, you know, it's in, in, in spite of all the, the lighthearted stuff that's going on, I think these kind of passages are important because it, it's really, you know, showing this ugliness that's, that's still here. You know, this, there's, a, we have this new country and there's this veneer of, of it being this, you know, sort of Eden. And that's, we'll get to that later with the specific line, um, more in depth. But, uh, I, I think Cherry Coke, I like his kind of being there to cast a light on all this darkness that is, that people are already trying to forget about this early in, in the history of the country. Yeah, I agree completely. And honestly, a lot of the, the stuff with Cherry Coke in these chapters is some of the best of of these chapters like Ch- mm-hmm. cherry coke really as a character i think comes alive in these chapters in a way that he hasn't had space to prior and i i think that if you're going to make the um I, a point that he is an authorial insert as many people have not just on our show but just in general i think that the things that he he mentions and talks about in these chapters and just the decision of what to chronicle and, and what he's telling the kids in, in the, the larger frame narrative is is very good evidence for the idea that that he is more or less Thomas Pinchot. Mm-hmm. What I really love about um, this, that, that exchange there is something that, that Pinchon does a really good job of demonstrating in his social critique, which is the that fundamentally so many political arguments come down to a a difference of understanding the world on a a very fundamental level. Mm. Because here you you have Cherry Coke very straightforwardly laying out the idea that, hey, it's really, it's scary enough to be on a boat when people are playing cards and somebody loses a pound and someone dies for it. But what are we talking about when you have these people getting so rich off of all of these weapons, what are, what's it going to do to the world? How are mm-hmm. we going to treat each other? And for, for, you know, for his brother-in-law. So what do you mean? I don't make millions of pounds. I make, I made a thousand last year. I'm, I'm middle class. I'm not that rich. And it's, it's, it's not about him. It's not about his power it's not about any individual power it's about the whole world's power being distributed differently and that's a a very simple demonstration of that disconnect between the two of them because i don't get the sense throughout this entire book no matter how you feel about people who manufacture or sell firearms 
I don't get the sense that Wade LeSpark is a is an evil man. He is a he's complicated. He's nuanced. Um, he's not a great man. Definitely uh, would rather turn his eye to horrors than correct mm-hmm. any of them. But he's he seems to be situated as the that the average merchant in this time period. And you know he's just not on the same plane of conversation as Cherry Coke in this context. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let's talk about the bathtub because that is <laughs> what immediately follows that exchange. I I'm seeing my notes in my book right now. Um, for anyone listening uh, who doesn't know, I live in South Texas. It's hot as hell right now, so my brain melts most of the day. Um, for some reason that I don't remember, I wrote the phrase balancing bathtubs Batman uh, <laughs> on the page. So, so there's that. <laughs> but this whole scene, the whole, the whole bathtub scene I thought was really funny. I thought it was, it was very well written. Um, it, and again, it has that, it, that Pinchonian wackiness to it that I love um, with, you know, it's not an over the top kind of, scene it's just this you know bathtub that is levitating for whatever reason that that mason has to hold on to while dixon hauls off and and tries to score uh and then a weird scientist shows up as will described way better than i can earlier um it's just such a fun scene and it it made me you know i didn't laugh as much as i did at the duck but i was still laughing uh pretty hard at, at this scene yeah, it's it's and it's just a funny prank on its own. Just like mm-hmm. a him going on this whole, you know, diatribe of like, oh, I've learned all of these semi-mystical arts from my time in education. Let me demonstrate one of them to you. Here, hold this. I'm going to show you. And then just he disappears to go, you know, philander around basically. And there's still a part of Mason that continues holding it because Probably he believes something's going to happen if he plays along yeah. long enough. He doesn't have a reason to doubt that. And just for him to continue standing there until this, again, weird scientist shows up. Yeah, it's a hilarious scene. I love it so much. Yeah, and it, it, it is a little ambiguous, to be fair. Right. It yeah. could be that Dixon really did say, well, you know, you know, we don't have a strong image of the actual situation but you know imagine he's starting to get this tub out of the room and he it's halfway out and he's just says oh i'm gonna go check the stairs and he means it he's gonna go check the stairs and he goes <laughs> out and then he's like oh you know i'm already out here might as well s- smoke a quick pipe bowl it'd be a nice break before i go back in and finish figuring out how to finagle this thing out of here and then uh, lady lepton shows up and he's just gets carried away in the moment but it is also exactly the same vibe as like a, a sibling or a friend sticking a cup against the ceiling with a broomstick, mm-hmm. handing it to somebody and walking away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, that's exactly kind of the, the vibe that I got from it as well. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny. That's a prank I hadn't thought of for a while. I <laughs> a classic one. Yeah, for yeah. a good reason. <laughs> I might have to do that to my kids. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, that that yeah, I thought it was just a fun, um, a fun little interlude. 
um, in in here, and and that's where we have uh, as Luke mentioned earlier the the infamous musical bodice, which I I did love that description um, about how it uh, depending on like how how fast or how hard you you ripped it, it would change the uh, the song that was played essentially. Um, just little things like that are are what make these books so great. You yeah. know, it's it's no like, who the hell else is going to think of a you know a bodice that is essentially like a tearaway xylophone, um, <laughs> and, and a player really, piano. What I love about that is that it has just come on the tail of this. Uh, they had this long conversation about how back in the old day, women used to be able to conceal so many things under yeah, their bodice yeah. and bustles, right? <laughs> and now, like, oh, they can't fit anything but a love note. And then it turns out that she has this whole clockwork machinery <laughs> that just exists so that for about 10 seconds, some beautiful music gets played. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, they can still store stuff. They've just gotten yeah. trickier about it. <laughs> and it, it, it brings to mind like something like a back brace that's just covered in uh, doohickeys and doodads and whirling and springing along as, you know, Dixon fumblingly pulls the cables out or the ribbon out of the corset <laughs> like it, it, uh, it it's a little it's a little thing that's fairly obvious but they are sneaking around right yeah they're trying to be inconspicuous well and then we we uh return to uh, a little bit of a more serious discussion uh and and i noticed it's I I would say it's it's prescient, but it's not really anything new. But there's a there's a kind of a discussion of this this obsession uh, with guns mm-hmm. that that we have as a country. And again, this is this is, you know late 1700s that this is being talked about, and still we're really the only, this is really the only country that that exists where um, you have that. But there's this, this little section, this little exchange. Every farmer here had a rifle by him. It is a primary tool, much as an ax or a plow. Uh, that can have failed to notice surrounded upon by all sides, night and day by the American mob, every blessed one of them packing firearms. Why? Yes, I may have made some note of that. Um, just another one of those instances where not much has really changed. And, you know, is it's that that's one of those industries that has grown and grown and grown uh ever since then and um also you know not to get too much onto that but also we have the return of the of that inverted star that we've seen um a couple of other times uh throughout the book yeah i found the the discussion of or well not discussion but the the spark story of the painting of the lancaster tavern sign very interesting Mm -hmm. because it really doesn't connect with anything else but it it does to to remind us that you know sometimes things aren't connected. Sometimes it's yeah, just a yeah. star on a sign, right? Yeah, which which I, there is somewhat of a like inside joke nature of that to me with with Pinchon and his own readers. The idea that a good chunk yeah. of Pinchon's readers are these like very obsessed people who look through you know every single possible reference and sign and image and all of that, which you know we do as a podcast weekly yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so this concept that he maybe and not even maybe definitely understands that his fans do that and then just inserts this aside of just like eh, sometimes it's just a star that's all it is yeah. 
you know yeah. i i think there's there's potentially some uh some inside joking there yeah well i mean lest we all become oedipa and and descend mm-hmm. into madness trying to sort out what is and isn't a symbol of something that we're looking for yeah but yeah what are we doing we're doing exactly that so what what do y'all make of the ostra section of this it's one of the hard to understand to me yeah that's i was i was just thinking about that because that's uh, as as pretty clear and concise as i found these chapters that was the one part that i i'm thinking about thinking back to it now and i i don't know um i'd probably have to reread it and come back to a conclusion on that to be honest did you have oh you you said you didn't have anything I, that you could can, really pull from it right i can spitball but like the, the, the there's something of she's you know she's kidnapped no not really kidnapped but you you, you gotta wonder why it is that they're, they're thinking about um the 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 idea of globalization and of um i don't know it, it's I don't know. There, there is something there, mocking the the idea of oh, we're actually doing the slaves a favor. They wouldn't have lives as good as we give them. Uh, I can see that in that yeah. in that last line of who said slavery is so terrible. Hey, but there's so much more there that I don't, I can't understand. Yeah, I, th- I think you're probably onto something there because that is something that has been brought up largely as an argument against people trying to diminish the effects of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and even sometimes it, it, it works its way into to people that you wouldn't normally think would be uh, trying to diminish the effects of slavery. Like, I think, it's, I think it's Muhammad Ali's famously said after he visited Africa that, thank God, my, my grandpa or great-grandpa got on that boat or whatever. Yeah, so I think that was him. Yeah, so there, there's been a number of different times in which that idea of you know we're actually taking these people out of a a a much worse situation and bringing them into into a better one has been used many times to justify the actions that are going on so i i would imagine that you you're on to something definitely there um you know i i beyond that there's stuff about the whole widows of christ order that it seems somewhat related to which is 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 mostly fictional but yeah i i did some you know researching and and trying to find if anyone had really mentioned it or talked about it and i i, I couldn't really find any good interpretation personally from anywhere that i looked yeah it, it's i mean it are we supposed to take it as as Austria been brainwashed in some way or as just having changed as a person through essentially experiencing you know, slightly more liberty, or at least the illusion mm-hmm. of it, or just learning more about the world, and I guess you know, as a side effect, being happier. I don't know. And they're, therefore, more interested in Mason. I don't know. It's weird because it it is not just that you know she appears in the service of her um, owner. She is also making appearances of her own accord. Right. Yeah, I. I... Don't really have anything I can add there. I I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, I, I'm gonna yeah, reread I, that section later, and, and I wanna I'm gonna see if I can maybe parse something out. But I 
I think you're probably on the right track there. That's that's what I'm I'm thinking too. Is that this is potentially just an aside that that Pinchon is getting into, where he wants to present, you know, the the idea that even the the oppressed classes of people can sometimes be convinced that they're that they're not oppressed. And I mean, with all of the general capitalistic talk that is in this chapter, I wouldn't be additionally surprised if that's if that's where he's going. Um, I don't remember who 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 quoted it, but someone said the difference between American people and and British people uh, fundamentally is that American people believe that they are are temporarily embarrassed millionaires um, that are on their way, you know, up to some higher plane of existence in life, despite the fact that you know most of us are not going to 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 lift ourselves out of poverty without some sort of outside force doing so. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are convinced that that somehow that is possible through the American dream. And so maybe it is a similar thing with Austria where, where she is under the impression that she is moving towards having autonomy or, or being able to, to exist on, on some level above, you know, slavery. Well, at least I'm not picking cotton or at least I'm not doing you know, yeah. this or that or the other thing. Um, and perhaps this will, if I prove myself in this way, then maybe I'll be, be given a chance of freedom. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's sort of the, the general realm that Pinchon is trying to work in here, but he doesn't make it very obvious. Certainly, no, that that makes a lot of sense. The then I guess yeah. that leads me to ask, what about the narrator of this section? Because it's ostensibly Wade the Spark, but we are getting these intercuts into uh, Cherry Cook's vision. These these breaks where it really is not the Spark talk. And it clearly is mm-hmm. not Cherry Coke talking in the same way we have previously, but it, it gets murkier and more obvious here. And I, I, in that context, I are we supposed to be taking it as an ironic who says three so terrible? Hey, or is it Wade the Spark saying, "Hey, slavery's got its benefits"? Yeah, it could honestly be that. I, yeah. I can absolutely see that being what what Pinchon is driving for here. Because you're right, this is this is one of those instances, like we talked about in the first episode, where where pay attention to the frame, who like who yeah. is talking, who is doing things. This is one of the perfect examples of of how that does affect what's on the page substantively. But this would be a good instance for uh, if any of our audience have any ideas or or theories about anything, then please write in, let us know. Well, then the chapter ends with another. Uh, another electrical show, as it were, this time not Benjamin Franklin's, but put on by the eel or or ray or skate. It's kind of um, unclear. I, I, I get the it, it seemed to me that it was implied that it was an eel, but there also was a correction that it wasn't, that it was more of a ray because the 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 torpedo itself, that animal is is technically a I think a skate or a ray. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the way it's described and what it is referred to as is an eel. So technically two different organisms, but essentially so it. The, so okay, the, what he's what that section is trying to explain is that torpedo refers exclusively to the electric ray, refers to right. the the yeah, and that's the term that it came to be used in Britain for all electric fish. But he science he has gone to uh, Suriname. Yes, and has met this electric eel, which is not an eel, as Linnaeus has decided. It is uh, a fodder fish related to, more closely related to lungfish called Gymnotidae. Mm. So there, the, it, it is an electric 
electric eel. It is definitely an electric eel, but he's just calling it a torp because that's what everyone calls it. Because that's okay. It's the vernacular. It's what it's known as. Yeah, yep, I got gotcha. you. Yep. Okay. It it is an electric eel, but electric eels aren't even eels, and he's a torpedo, even though electrics aren't torpedoes. Right. Uh, so that's our science lesson for for this episode. Thank you. Our yeah. biology. I, th- I think that section is. I think it's supposed to be mostly funny. I don't know who other than me I finds took it, it as. funny, but I. I, <laughs> I no, I very much thought it was funny. Yeah. Um, especially the description of the 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 fops or the, the kind of hipsters that are there uh, to watch the show. Uh, I loved the description of of them and their their uh, shoes with heels higher than the stems of wine glasses, and <laughs> stockings unmatched in colors incompatible, uh, such as purple and green, strange orange, the strange opaque spectacles in both these shades and many others. Yeah, it, I thought it was a very funny scene, um, but. The- it's uh oh go ahead i'm sorry no i just had a thought um the it's so this whole section is full of you know unrealistic impossible things um yeah but this chapter in particular with the the basin and all that but uh, electric eels don't you know they don't kill people they just can't kill no they can like mildly they can like the the most they can can do is cause like muscle spasms or something if you touch them. Um, so a did Vosh just like kill that guy in in Philadelphia? And second, uh, boom, well, sorry. yeah, probably did. <laughs> and second of all, um, it's just the idea that he was sold this thing as El Peligroso, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's just such an over the top name for. If you look up electric eels, if you don't know what an electric eel looks like, do so. They look like if a catfish was with a penis. They are not oh, yeah. scary. So They're so they, weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's deeply hilarious that they would be called the dangerous one when they are <laughs> just they just lay there and they eat like crabs and stuff. Yeah. They're really they're they're really cool creatures. Um, I, I did a little bit of a Wikipedia dive on, on electric fish just to, I had nothing else to do and I was interested in reading about them and yeah, they're really fascinating. Um, and, but it, yeah, it's definitely, there is a, uh, a lot of embellishment in how yeah the electric eel works in this section for sure. It it really does sell his character as, as a true snake oil salesman. If, oh yeah. If you're someone who is aware of, of how not dangerous these creatures are um but the the fact that yeah he is selling it like the way that saturday morning cartoons sell the danger of an electric eel Mm -hmm. uh, is is it's it's frankly hilarious and you know i i don't know exactly how much electricity they can produce it's possible you could get a spark out of them maybe you could do something like that well, so that's of, what I was going to bring up. Is, to see a separate dimension. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I don't think it's going to bring out a, like some transcendental uh, experience through it. I, I don't think it's a very high voltage that they are able to generate. Um, no. Let me, I want to bring it up now just real quick. because That's curious. what I'm already doing. Oh, good. Maybe you'll beat me to it. volts at 500 hertz. Okay. Yeah, 600 volts. It, so it is the most powerful of all electric fishes. So there's that. Um, 
but yeah, I don't, it, I don't think, I know for sure it's not going to generate a, uh, trans-dimensional, uh, spark that will cause life-changing visions in anyone, but, um, it's, no, no, it's a good scene. It's, it's, I think it's, it's meant to play on people's, um, uh, lack of knowledge in, in the sciences and how they can be used against them. Um, so you can use them to put on a show. You can use them to spread misinformation. You can use them to scam people. You know, there's all kinds of stuff you can do with them. If people don't know how it works, then they're just going to take your word on. It's a dangerous thing and you need to be scared of it and do whatever you need to do, whatever it is I need you to do to keep away from it. But I do love the description that Mason gives, um, of what he saw. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Really beautifully written passage. Um, bizarre as it is and unlikely as it is, it was beautifully written. I, I did also love that he couldn't resist taking an opportunity to crap on Cherry Coke again as he's describing yes. his like otherworldly Sid Trip like vision that he has off of touching the, the eel. Where he, even then, he's still like, if I have to talk to him. And God forbid if I tell him what happened and I have to sit through some long diatribe in response <laughs> of his interpretation. Like, and the, the funniest thing about the constant like insults thrown towards him is he has done nothing to deserve this behavior over the course no. of the book. Like, there is seemingly no reason why everyone hates being around this guy, but any time one of the other characters who is not Cherry Coke brings him up, it is always with some sort of caveat of, I really would hate to interact with this person, or like, that guy sucks, or do I have to go talk to him? It's so funny that that is constantly in addition to any time he's brought up by another character. Mm-hmm. Well, it it does bring to mind um, who is Thomas Pynchon and why did he run away with my wife? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. True. I was just about to say <laughs> if it is an authorial insert, is it, maybe that's Pynchon's like self-effacing humor. Yeah, because I'm you know it's been a little bit since I read Inherent Vice, but if I remember correctly, people were people people liked Doc, but it was. It, it, he it did seem like he got on people's nerves by asking too many questions sometimes just yeah like he was just other. kind of a inconvenience to be around sometimes yeah yeah he's he's never somebody that uh you're gonna kick out of your house but you are gonna sigh before you let him in yeah <laughs> anything else that, that we wanted to go over on chapter 42 uh i guess the square halagast is an interesting character at this mm -hmm. point because he's starting to become a little bit more prophetic for the reader. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't have much to, I don't have him, but I just think use, uh, worth noting. Yeah, definitely something to keep an eye on as we continue further. Yeah. 43 is short, but wow, is like Mason's anger is on full display. Yeah. Uh, in this one and i had forgotten about this chapter i think probably just because of how short it was and wow i just <laughs> when mason uh gets pissed he gets pissed yeah i mean he's he's right to be upset you know mm -hmm. no doubt like i totally i absolutely get where he's coming from um but it's it's a very sharp contrast to the sort of ned flanders-esque 
character that we've been used to, <laughs> um, which also tracks for Flanders. You know, when he gets pissed, he gets pissed and just erupts. So, yeah, this definitely does paint an image of a man pacing back and forth, just just screaming while another mm-hmm. person sits in a chair, terrified to interject with anything <laughs> other than yep. "uh huh, uh huh." And just wait until they're done speaking. But the other thing, too, that I, I love about this, though, is that a, a portion of his anger still comes from a place of very real tenderness in that aside that he makes where he goes, you know, I lost, you know, three people that I loved. And then this guy comes in and takes their place right afterwards. What, you know, what what right does he think he has to take their place? Like, it, it's still it isn't just anger out of the inherent potential insanity of this character being named as the royal astronomer but also that what that position means to 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 mason in in a broader context of his life experience you know it it really recalls the importance of the 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 potentially polyamorous relationship that the four of them had yeah and and how how deeply that is something that he still carries with him and has not moved on from so even within the context of his anger, you're still learning about just how deeply Mason cares for the people in his life that matter to him. And I think the fact that Mason is willing to, I'll say, subject Dixon to a rant of this magnitude is a, another example of their relationship deepening um, to to another level as we continue through here, because generally people don't blow up this this hard around people that they're not comfortable with because there's a fear that they're going to think they're crazy. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. When, when someone like Mason starts saying "fuck" repeatedly, yeah. like you know something is not something's not right, and which, yeah, I can just yeah, which comes across you know on the page. Like this isn't the first time those words have been used in the book necessarily but no. as i was reading it i was like oh damn we're here okay like him mm-hmm. using that language definitely came across even to me as the reader um which it which is a sign of just how carefully his his words have been plotted out and how carefully his character has been constructed yeah i did find this that chapter pretty relatable um you know i i have a mfa in creative writing and uh mfa's uh, especially in creative writing, are known for being competitive, um, the students being competitive with one another, and even sometimes the professors being competitive with one another, the professors being competitive with students, students being competitive with professors. Um, we're, you know, One thing that I think maybe Kate has figured out about the, the writer life is that there are only so many spots. Um, true. Yeah, there's only so many magazines that can publish you. There's only so many, you know, all that stuff. Um so I, I have had a similar reaction to maybe not maybe not that similar, but just a, a exaggerated um, and a bit cartoonish and maybe a little. I, I do think that maybe Mason is, is maybe hamming it up a little bit here where he's he's being encouraged by Dixon and that just kind of drives him on. You know, like I've had experiences like that where I, I was mad about something and I was letting it out and um you know, it seemed to kind of entertain the people around me that I was so emotional. And so I kind of upped the emotion a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously Mason is feeling competitive with masculine and, you know, masculine is, is shown in the St. Helena sections to be a bit of a crackpot, um, to be a bit of a weirdo. Um, you know, unlike, you know, Mason has his own issues with, with like seeing Rebecca, um, 
you know, seeing ghosts and stuff, you know, but masculine doesn't seem quite as self-aware as Mason. And yeah, I don't know. I guess just to summarize, I do understand Mason's frustration um, in that chapter. Um, it is very, it's very relatable. I think, I mean, pretty much, you know, even people that have been up for promotions and haven't gotten them and know the person that did get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and know that like they that. don't deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's, there's a lot of different ways in which this chapter is kind of relatable to pretty much anyone who has had a job or has any kind of ambition. Um, I don't know. I, I think in the, the pension group read on the pension subreddit, the, the, person who summarized these chapters kind of questioned the the usefulness of that chapter but i do think it, it definitely humanizes mason is also somewhat comedic and definitely shows the yeah like all we're talking about the the connection between D- dixon and mason yeah mm-hmm. i see it as also uh even though science the sciences are seen as kind of the birthplace of professionalism as we view it today um but pr- professionalization is a, a process which has been known to uh you know, get this kind of rage. Think of the the person who's been working at an office for, you know, 40 years and can't ever uh, get promoted above a certain level because they don't have a degree, even though they know Mm -hmm. the business better than most people. That's kind of what's happening here is Mason, you know, he knows Masculine. He knows Masculine is a dedicated astronomer. He doesn't actually think that he doesn't deserve to be in the running. Mm -hmm. But what he what he's upset about is the fact that, hey, he didn't do anything wrong, and he did so much work. Uh, w- without Mason, uh, Masculine's ability or Masculine's pr- uh, procedure to find latitude probably wouldn't exist. W- basically saying, I am the giant on whose shoulders you are standing. Right. You get to be in. You get to be the astronomer royal over me when it just comes down to the fact that, you know, he's not very, very pleasant cocktail party and he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. He's just a mm-hmm. baker's son who went the trade route of learning from a mentor instead of going the quote unquote proper way. And he's just left in the lurch. Well, and Masculine also has a connection with um, Clive of India. So it's, yeah, it's also exactly. kind of a who you know kind of thing you know so i think we've all i think yeah i think it's a very relatable thing you know you, you see the people who get moved ahead that don't deserve it or who, they get moved ahead just because they know the right people and they've shaken the right hands and yep. it's absolutely frustrating yeah uh but also in this brief very brief chapter there is a lot of uh, uh historical information once again crammed into a small section uh, with a lot of important figures uh, throughout early astronomy. Well, I say early astronomy, but this time period of astronomy. Uh, so they, they mentioned John Harrison, who solved the the longitude at sea problem that was mentioned earlier with, with being able to track uh, longitude while moving across the ocean. Um, and I think Brett alluded to that uh, in one of his earlier emails. Um, they mentioned John Bevis, who discovered the Crab Nebula. Uh, the Mr. Short that is referenced uh, made a reflector for one of the telescopes that Mason and Dixon used. Uh, John Flamsteed was the first astronomer royal, and then Edmund Halley, obviously the well-known mostly for the comet uh, that bears his name. Um, so just, you know, six huge figures in astronomy crammed into a very short little section of this chapter. And it really is, you know, 
I'm, it'd be I'd be amazed to find if anybody prior to Mason and Dixon wrote about how incredibly uh, masculine just kind of did supersede Charles Mason in all of these little ways. <laughs> yeah, because Ma- Mason did all of this work to to figure out how to to do longitudes and stuff, and he he did he was connected with the East India Company. You know, as as Brett told us, the the Sam Peach he was in cahoots with was probably just some minor guy, but you know he had a connection. And in this book, we're gonna take it as a assumption that he's like a big silk trader in the India Company, and you know he he's he's done all this stuff. They're both weird. They're both a little crazy. They're both young within the 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 astronomers. Uh, you know, employed by the Royal Society, both young people. The the real difference is just that Mason's a little too old and a little too lower class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also coming from a man who doesn't even know why he's doing what he's doing and what the importance of it is and why they're paying him so much. Like he's also just on this assignment that he's on already feeling completely unmoored because he has to go away from his kids again. He's, you know, he's in this weird situation that he does not understand and that feels more important than it should, given what he's actually doing on a day-to-day basis. Like, this must have just felt like the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, Mm -hmm. where just he can't, like... I have a lot of thoughts going through my head, so I'm having a hard time verbalizing, but like <laughs> he, he's he been in this position where weirdly it seems like he's being railroaded on this like this journey of fate or destiny or something like that. He can't figure out what is guiding his his position in life right now, what's pushing him in the direction that he's going in. He's seeing visions of his dead wife. He is being pressured to get into a new relationship by Dixon, jokingly or not. He feels this almost supernatural bond to a man that he has known for like a year and a half, which is a bond he's felt for an incredibly long time um, relative to the book's runtime at this point. And so like all of these confusing elements of his life are really making it seem like he's supposed to be here, but he has no clue why. And the most important thing to him would have been getting the spot that Masculine had, and he learn gets and he learns that it's not gonna be him. And so he's stuck in a foreign country doing something that feels important and that he's supposed to be doing, but has no clue why, nor why he's being paid that much money for it, and is missing out on being given the position that in his own life's lineage would have passed from someone very important to him to now him. And he could have sort of probably felt a continued connection with these people from his from his past life prior to the mapping of the Mason and Dixon line. And now he's in a position where he is forging kind of a new life and a new bond with this this guy. And is just but he's without purpose. Like he doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. That would probably be incredibly heartbreaking for most people to experience yeah. um on on a on a number of levels. So Chapter 44, I, 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 I kind of want to get uh, Will and, and Luke's opinion on this, um, only because 
Kate hasn't read Against the Day, but this this chapter to me, I know we keep going back to Against the Day and the connections here, but this chapter had probably the most seemingly direct references to that book than any other section of this book so far. Yeah, I can totally see where you're getting at. Yeah, even the fact that the it opens with the ley lines thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I think is I think we've been over this uh, a good amount, uh, but I do th- I do think that the ley lines thing comes from the time when against the day is set, um, and not from the time of Mason and Dixon. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I do think that that's an interesting little connection. Um, and as we as we probably mentioned, I do think that against the day was probably being written concurrently with Mason and Dixon. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I don't, I don't think we ever reached a conclusion on the, the courts and, and Rose Rose courts thing. Um, but that does seem to be a definite um, nod to um, there being similarities. Yeah. Specifically the, the courts is kind of what cued me into it. I think was the, the constant references to, uh, utilizing courts for different purposes, um, whether it was from that opening, you know, with uh, the master valve of Rose Quartz, um, or the use of courts as a prism, which the Pinjon Wiki mentioned, you know, it doesn't uh, really courts doesn't really work like that, um, but it does, I, I think, have the ability to kind of not necessarily. Uh, split light in the way that a prism would, but it it does have the ability to, uh, to cause, the, especially with the Icelandic spar, that doubling effect um, that it has. But then also the use of quartz to uh, when they were projecting images, when they were uh, talking with the um, the kind of fortune teller, um, and then also the 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 yo mama jokes. Um, <laughs> Got me. I I don't think specifically in Against the Day there was the chums of chance kind of egged at each other like that. But then what it really got me in mind of for some reason was the the scene early in the book with Lou Bass Knight and Archduke Ferdinand when they're in the bar and Archduke Ferdinand basically starts like antagonizing a bunch of the people there and then it turns into a sort of a like with Jefferson and uh, not Jefferson Washington and. Um, and Gershom, where he's he's affecting this kind of um, really stereotypical and over-the-top dialect with the patrons, and then basically implies that he's going to pay for everyone's drinks and then just fucks off so that everyone is stuck with the tab. Um, but I, I, for some reason, like the Yo Mama jokes made me think of, of that particular scene in Against the Day, so... Um, but yeah, I just I, I felt like there was a lot more connection to the to that book with all the the courts talk and and the the ley lines as well. Well, plus we get the first introduction of the Swedes. Oh yeah, don't we? Or yeah, yeah no, that that is in this chapter. Okay. They're trying yeah. to be sold to to Mason and Dixon. Yeah. yeah, I also really like the I also really like the the ending of the chapter with. The uh, Mason and Dixon kind of unintentionally causing a divorce. Um, yes. Which yeah. is, uh, it's just pretty funny. I don't really know a lot about divorce at this time. I also don't don't I, I assume that the the whole like being married in one state or colony would be like I didn't really understand 
that whole thing, I assume it's historical and that it's something about like if you move, you know, you have to like get remarried or something, but probably because of how jurisdictions worked because they didn't have it wasn't necessarily as unified as it is now. Um so different states would have had probably different laws for things. I do think it could be a sign of like how this is just now occurring to me, but how like um, the you know the division between Pennsylvania and Maryland is such a such a drastic uh, or mm-hmm. pro- potentially drastic uh, place of uh, delineation and and change between North and South. Yeah, plus the whole Catholic Protestant divide. It might just be as simple as Catholics not recognizing Protestant marriages and vice versa in this particular instance. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, but I did like the constant deferring of responsibility to other parties as far as, like, oh, that's not, don't ask me about that. You need to ask him. No, not me. You need to ask him. I I, I really love how it starts out with Mrs. Price being all down for basically the opportunity to just decide on a moment-to-moment basis whether she'll be married to him or not. And yeah. slowly deciding, no, nah, it would be better to just not ever be married to him. <laughs> and him progressively getting angrier and angrier at the at the at any of this until he realizes, well, it'll be really hard to push the whole house uphill. <laughs> and then he's just like, all right, all right, the the marriage is done, guys. All right, pack it up. <laughs> So and I'm, it made me curious if if the line at any point actually did run through anyone's house. It it would be a really rare occurrence, I think, given the the more spread out nature of of houses at the time. Uh, but I I couldn't find anything as far as whether anything like that actually ever happened. I would be surprised if it didn't happen at least once, like just, right. just with the amount of distance they were covering. Um, but then that leads to the question of what happens, you know, as, as yeah. is explained in here, like what happens to that property at that point? Like, how does, what, what is the legal ramification of that line bisecting your house at any point? Right. You'd hope yeah. that it was on a percentage basis. If you're right. if more of your house is in one territory than the other, then that's who you pay taxes to. But yeah. you'd be in a real crappy situation if you end up du- duly paying taxes like they are joking about in this chapter. This is also like that kind of like division between land is also something that has come up for me in my in my life just going from Texas to Colorado and Colorado to Texas and going and changing the the um time zone is you know like where it is you know like I don't you know, like you you go like a mile and the and the time's different you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. like it's not that's not something that's major but it does still kind of come up in modern life I think yeah for sure yeah and it's it's worth pointing out i think that that this is not some like these are not people who feel like they have a like they they, this is their home this is what they are making a home at most they've inherited it from their parents there is not a, a local culture and i don't mean like these people don't have culture what i mean is they don't there is not a pennsylvania there is not a maryland this early on there are yeah facets of maryland and pennsylvania you know philadelphia is a place annapolis all these individual fragments of what become these now states they do exist but they were not states they were basically just land grants given to private corporations like these people 
yes, what what happens when you move the lines is is the question. But at the same time, these lines are incredibly mobile. They are not lines that have sat there for a long time. These people don't, other than selfishness, don't have an attachment to the line that they perceive or that they assume. Mm-hmm. And it, it just seems like that's a, a, a tint that's important to keep in mind over all of this because it is not a situation like today or like prior to colonialism. This is a very particular section where things are fluid. Well, it's another instance of people's mindsets being changed as soon as a map line is drawn. Because the last time this happened, they they drew the line through a portion of that guy's farm and like land that he was he was utilizing for for growing things. And then suddenly his mind changed and and he cared suddenly about all of the land that he had been growing things on. He suddenly had like a a, a redoubled you know interest in in maintaining his property and in expanding mm-hmm. and getting more property. And now we have another line going through another person's property, albeit a bit more intimately because it's inside their house. And then suddenly, uh, both both of them have different opinions as to the to the dynamic of their marriage. She wants to escape it, and and he's suddenly willing to do whatever he can to 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 keep this marriage, which is probably in stark contrast to his behavior prior, given that she wanted to escape the marriage. Um, so it's it is another interesting instance of of these these lines of modernity i'll say are being laid down and how people are responding to it um because divorce was probably not a thing really um you know as far as a a widespread practice or even a regular practice and so suddenly you have you have this aspect of a more modern world coming through this person's house and then suddenly their their perspective towards each other and towards their their language towards their marriage also moves in a a more modern direction given that nowadays divorce is fairly common and is accepted well that's a that's a good segue into the other really funny part of this chapter which is the uh obviously pinchon's disdain for uh, real estate and, and land developers mm-hmm. um and dixon's <laughs> really not subtle desire to kill them Nope. And like immediately. Yeah. Just, <laughs> that switch is flipped so quick. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I loved that scene uh, where, you know, in, in Mason's kind of not understanding of what exactly is going on. He just knows that he needs to probably remove Dixon from the situation. And Dixon's mm-hmm. just like, no, I don't take me wherever you want. We're going to do this. Like, if you want to yeah. do it, that's fine. One of us is going to kill this guy. <laughs> I did also love the um, the the line. I believe it's in this chapter where uh, it, it says that they 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 speak in a way that is only that is not like hearable outside of a pipe stem's length. Yeah, it's yeah. Just that that imagery of of the fact that they they kind of have learned how to um, speak in in hushed tones, and they know when to do that, and they know how to control their their tenor and timbre on other people, I think, is is another good illustration of of just their their growing closeness. Which, and it's also just a a really well worded you know phrase there. And then the the fact that uh, one of them feigns insanity or or plans to feign insanity, which mm-hmm. seems to be something that they have they have learned from the captain of the seahorse as a <laughs> a viable option to escape difficult situations. Um, 
were were both really great inclusions in this chapter too that I loved. Let's let's not presume they learned it from him. They might have figured it out from many times Mason goes on a rant. <laughs> That's true. One uh one small detail I did like about this chapter, which is definitely this this detail is definitely juvenile and uh perhaps a bit misogynistic um but the ending where she says where i'm no longer your wife she reminds him and then the husband says i and there's another reason he nods soberly well then let's fetch the boys and get to it tis maryland ho um you know i don't i this is again juvenile and perhaps a little not politically correct but it, you can read that as him possibly calling his wife a, a ho um, which i thought was kind of an interesting little detail yeah, I mean, I don't because the yeah. word "ho" like we don't really use it that way anymore. Where it's like "hark" yeah, yeah. or you know, like whatever. Um, it is that that possible double meaning did occur to me. Yeah, that 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 could make sense, especially within context of like this woman at home alone, who when men knock on her door is like, "Oh, come in! Oh, yeah. have have this food!" Oh, without hesitation. Like, yeah, yeah, which which feels very very tropey in similar directions. It's definitely a joke I would have really loved in high school, but now I'm a, I'm <laughs> yeah. a little I'm a little kind of yeah. yeah. It yeah, it might be there, it might not be. Yeah, and I, and I will say the one thing that I have to add on the the quartz thing, not related to against the day, is is that it is specified as as rose quartz, which if you're someone who's into crystals or in my case knows a lot of people who are into crystals, um, rose quartz is very specifically supposed to within that paradigm of crystals having abilities or powers or whatever, um, developing deeper bonds with like spouses or friends. So the idea that the the waypoint marker for this West line that they're gonna spend most of their time journeying on is placed by these two men who are becoming very close friends feels like potentially uh very deliberate. Yeah, I would considering Pynchon's connection to the sixties counterculture, I would I would have to assume that he he was aware of that, which I, I didn't think about at all, but I do think that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't that I never made that connection either, but I think Luke's right that given his uh the time frame that he was around and all that, yeah, I think that would definitely track. Um so the other thing I wanted to bring up, the last part I wanted to bring up in chapter forty four, um, was it was mentioned on the pension wiki and I I so I'll read the line from the book, and then I'll read what the wiki said, because I, I thought it was interesting, and I wanted to get y'all's opinion on it. So the line in, in the book, it's on page 441. Everything upon the ground by April, as they were about to begin the West Line, must be sighted through a haze of green resurrection. Uh, and then what the wiki says, and I'll, I'll just read it directly from there, is, uh, wow, remember that radar screen in Gravity's Rainbow with its green return, also the superhighways of July song with spring's green return. Green resurrection links the cycle of the seasons back to Christ's cycle of suffering, which suggests Wix is well aware of Christianity's pagan roots at the psychological and historical level at least, if not necessarily theological and spiritual. But there's also a hint in resurrection at America, the new world being an Eden of, or was that for, the redeemed. Unlike the corrupt, fallen old worlds further east, depending on which way you read it, the new world is either virgin land ripe for corruption or a second chance from a, lo- uh, from a loving creator which recalls the opinion expressed by Pinchon's narrator in Gravity's Rainbow 720 of, quote, we the crippled keepers, God spoilers, us, counter-revolutionaries. It is our mission to promote death. A chillingly beautiful passage leading up to and beyond the judgment at Gravity's Rainbow 722.22 
America was the edge of the world in Africa, Asia, Amerindia, Oceania, Europe came and established its order of analysis and death. Does Penchon still believe this in Mason and Dixon, or does he, be- does he believe there is life in America's old corpse still? I personally took this more to be that prior to, again, modernity arriving in, in the sense of this colonial project, and now the process of, of drawing map lines and of actually subdividing land out, that there was this sort of Eden-esque quality to the land. Um, you know, miles and miles of untouched old-growth forest. The the natives on this this particular portion of the earth had not, you know, built cities and roads and highways and all of that. They kind of had a significantly greater respect for land than the British, you know, uh, colonists did and tried within their very ethos of living to be at one and and at harmony with the land and so this this idea that they are about to not just create a line but also as we see in this chapter because they're they're trying to get them to recruit these axemen are going to cut a line through that they're going to to literally cut down a portion of this of this beautific landscape in order to to make way for something that signals a a ultimately a, a, a despoiling of the land, you know, putting buildings on it and then that leads to to all sorts of the the trappings of of what we do to the climate as industry rises and all of that. Um I, I see it more as this idea of there is there is an Edenic quality to America prior to the arrival of of modernity and of people from um, across the coast or across the sea who wanted to, to, to build it into something else. Similar to, to Luke's point about comparing um, America to Eden. I, th- I think it was maybe three episodes ago that he talked about that. Yeah, that's, I can't put it any better than that. That's exactly what I took away from it as well. I believe that takes us to the return of the duck now. I was about to say, yeah. The, yeah. So then we move into chapter 45, and uh, our, our good friend the duck is back. Um, so he seems now, or she, I'm sorry, uh, seems now to have grown into a sort of tall tale or like urban legend uh, at the beginning, and then possibly a, a deity by, <laughs> by page 449, um, specifically where it says, uh, whilst advanced in some areas such as flight and invisibility, Armand explains, yet in others does the duck remain primitive, foremost in her readiness to take offense. You must have noticed she has no shame, any pretext at all will do. As her metaphysical powers increase, so do her worldly resentments, real and imagined, the shape of her destiny pulled earthward and rising heavenward at the same time, meanwhile gaining an order of magnitude and passing from the personal to the continental, if not the planetary. Perhaps, fortunately, no one present has any idea what he's talking about. So yeah, it's take, the, the duck has now taken on this like mythos, um, which, rightly so. I think the duck is is deserving of uh, of such uh, legend at this point, and uh, I just I love the fact that it continues to harass everyone, including stealing Mason's hat at one point, um, which was one of my favorite just one off jokes. Um, just if it's stealing Mason's hat and then just you're juggling in the it. distance. Yeah. <laughs> juggling it in the air. Yeah. What was what I found interesting about that quote that you read out is I I didn't necessarily interpret that to be literally what has happened to the duck, but rather 
the potential ravings of a man who has spent way too much time thinking about one thing yeah and has spent way too much time thinking about what this duck is what it's turning into what it represents all of that to the point that he will go on this sort of wild monologue that loses everybody almost immediately and there's there's and just the way that that ends with it with everyone else going what the hell are you talking about like that last (laughs) sentence is really funny um and i also found it very relatable as a person with autism if someone asks me a question about something that i know a specifically large amount of information on then i will just fill out you know sentence upon sentence for 10 minutes until i've completely lost the person on whatever that thing is and then and then i'll have to to rephrase into a into a a, a shorter bit of information for them mm-hmm. um so that was really how i kind of related to this section and also kind of what i took away from it is that this guy just he's been around this thing too much he's thought about it too much he can't get away from it and so this is the opinion he's arrived at and is telling people whether they want to hear it or not um and and is probably not even necessarily a reflection of reality given that it makes very little sense yeah no it's completely consumed him like yeah (laughs) this is all it is and so he's built it into this thing this this grand concept so okay i i have a lot of thoughts on this particular matter and i'm gonna try to not just rant about it okay that sounded Um, that sounded threatening by the way (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm aware. Um, so, all right, we've already in the previous episodes talked about a little bit how you can see the duck as a through line of the 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 the, the, the robot V in V, um, mm-hmm. as well as the rocket in um, Gravity's Rainbow, mm-hmm. and all of these other things. Um, you can also see it as, in some way, a sort of uh, symbol of rational- rationality. And one particular thing that he's getting at in this section is this almost... Um, he, he's taking almost like particle physics and general relativistic um, concepts and applying them to this duck. Uh, it, it's, it's evocative of... The, the uncertainty principle when measuring subatomic particles. It's uh, reminiscent of discussions of how as certain, or as particles, as objects increase in velocity, they increase in mass as well as luminosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it all ties together in into this kind of clump of illusions that to me, I I really have a struggle not doing something along the lines of what Armand is doing here, of turning turning the duck into a symbol of everything. And to make it all worse, um, the, the section on angels, which uh, Luke brought up in the beginning of this episode, mm-hmm. really, I mean, that, that, that makes me only want to dig into um, the Duino elegies by Rilke, which I've never read in full, but I have skimmed. And the amount which they they fill gravity's rainbow, and the amount of angel discussion in this section makes me think that if you are going to look at the duck, it's important to keep it in the the idea of not necessarily 
German, but rationalism and the the way that rationalism was treated as romantic at this period of time and how it allows seems to have allowed individuals to create these uh these epicycles of philosophy and mysticism which justify things like um slavery uh and the holocaust and gravity rainbow but even just justifying the idea of creating a a duck that flies faster than the speed of light and seems to have a greater than human control of, of the world, despite having the level of reason of what seems to be a slightly smarter duck. One thing that I find interesting about the duck, um, and something I kind of wish I'd brought up last week during my discussion of it, our discussion of it, is looking at the duck through the lens of uh, the Jewish uh, mysticism concept of the golem uh golem um hmm. i i uh i i'm fairly i've gotten into kabbalah which i think is how you say it i'm not i think i used to always call it kabbalah but i think it's kabbalah um i've kind of delved into that recently and in like the last week or two and then in the in the past year or two i've also kind of generally done a a deeper dive into that um which i'm not it's kind of one of those things where it feels like you could i could spend the rest of my life researching different aspects of it and different writings and stuff it feels a bit endless and like it's an insurmountable task to wrap your head around uh, a lot of the concepts and stuff and i'm definitely not a not a um not an expert on the um, concept of the golem but i i do think that you know the the basic concept is is uh, giving life to some type of uh, inanimate object and or yeah like basically an inanimate, inanimate object i mean you could you could view robots stuff like the automa automatons and v as golems um the only real reason i bring that up is because you know it's i have seen it documented and and talked about pretty pretty wildly widely and uh, in some depth uh, in scholarly circles uh, with especially gravity's rainbow uh, and its connection to Kabbalah, um, you know, Pynchon definitely does seem to be aware of Kabbalah um, and has have done some research into it. And, um, you know, even his obsession with pigs and pigs flying and different stuff like that um, is, is a bit of a reversal of some of some Jewish beliefs and concepts. Um, I don't really necessarily where I'm going with that. I just basically am pointing out that the duck could be could be construed or, or viewed as a as a as a as an example of the Jewish concept of the golem. That's an interesting I had made that connection, but that's definitely an interesting theory. I probably yeah, I probably wouldn't have gone there if, if his other books didn't kind of delve more into that kind of stuff in a very in a much more yeah. obvious way. Yeah. It is an interesting one, and you can spend your entire life just reading the Zohar if you wanted and still not really get to much actual detail of it. That That's usually why it's recommended within Jewish circles not to even start researching that or, or getting into it um, until you're, you're significantly far down a, a, a studying track. It's usually really only looked at by, by rabbis, um, in all in all reality it was kind of popularized 
I think in like the late 90s, like there's a celebrity craze about it, um, which is where a lot of that became more accessible to the average person. But I wouldn't be surprised if Pinchon had been somehow getting a hold of it long before then. Um, yeah, the golem is an interesting is an interesting thing. Just for more context for the listeners, if they're not familiar with it, the 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 golem is this thing that is spelled out within the Zohar that it, it's a a monster or protector. More is a is a correct understanding of it that is created mostly out of clay because um, that was what they would have had access to in in sort of the 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 land the Israelite people come from that is brought to life using a combination of Hebrew letters that without going down a whole rabbit hole, they all have different meanings. And so you can use them to kind of create what, what people outside of the faith might refer to as spells that animates this, this clay being of uh, with life. And then it is primarily meant to be employed for saving a group of Jewish people when there is a time of trouble. So it's this idea that if for some reason you are in a position as a, as a Jew or as a group of Jews where you are in trouble due to potentially an invader or someone wanting to harm you, this would be something that you could use to create protection for yourself is, is sort of the, the background information about that. Yeah. And the duck does seem to be protective of uh, the cook and interested in, uh, guarding him and stuff, which you know is is not a is not a connection that I made until you just brought that up. But that is an aspect of the duck's existence. True, especially now that their relationship is significantly more set in stone. Mm-hmm. Another place in pop culture where golems are very resonant is actually in Superman, because the creators of Superman were. Jewish artists, and they were inspired to to create a, a sort of an alien character in the way that uh, you know Jewish people have been alienated from society, who still comes to uh, protect the world that he views as his home, kind of like a golem does, except unlike a golem, he's made of flesh. Um, and I'm just trying to pull together, I guess, and I, I nothing's coming to mind, but. You know, a lot is made of the velocity of the duck, and I guess I'm just going to say I'm going to keep an eye out for faster than a speeding bullet and such. Mm. Good point. It's interesting. I was not really too familiar with Superman, so I did not did not know all that. Yeah, and um, you know, Pinchon was a huge fan of comics as a kid, and he would have been a kid when Superman was in its heyday. Yeah. And uh, with regard to the Kabbalah thing, I mean, he I mean, let's not forget the, the Kabbalism in uh, in Gaudi's Rainbow with the Tree of Life and all of yeah, that as central metaphor. So yeah, he. I mean, the, the guy the guy knows all about that kind of stuff, or yeah. all all that you can hope to know, you know. But I hadn't made the connection with the Golem before, so thank you for that, Luke. Yeah, like I said, I've been there's a short story I I wrote about a year and a half ago that I'm I'm sure showcases a very elementary and basic uh understanding of the Kabbalah, but um it definitely uh invokes and incorporates a lot of kind of like I said basic aspects of it that I've kind of revisited 
in the past week or two. Um, so, and I, I have probably four or five books uh, about Kabbalah. And then I did find a YouTube, a guy on YouTube who has like a, a 15 hour video series about it that I've been watching at work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something I, I've been interested in a lot and for a while. I mean, I'm just kind of generally interested in mysticism. So, well, let's move over to the funny parts of these chapters that we haven't already discussed. Um, I had two that I wanted to bring up. Uh, the first is in in the backstory of um, forgive me because I've just forgotten her name. Um, the woman who's with Lepton. Why can't she, I think of her name? She now? doesn't get a name, actually. She's just she doesn't get a Lepton. name. Thank you. That's yeah, Lady Lepton. Okay, I'm racking my brain trying to think of a name that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> so when when Dixon's watching her uh, writing, and it says, "But the boy had watched her out on the fell, riding so fast that her amazing hair blew straight back behind her, the same wind pressing her eyelids shut and her lashes into a fan and forcing her lips apart." It it's described as though she's got her face in front of a fan. Like, just, you know, with the, yeah. the extreme wind blowing into her face and, like, you know, blowing her lips open and, you know, forcing her eyes open. I just thought that was hilarious. Um, the other, and I didn't catch this until the pinch on wiki pointed it out. Uh, during the bathtub scene, when uh, Mason thinks that he is meant to flirt with a pancake, essentially, um, the section is the professor has a look-see, waving his apparatus in mystical, though regular curves at the tub. Fascinating. The axis is on its magic is, is on its magnetic. Good thing he didn't try to balance this mechanically. Woo. You'd be in you'd be flattered in a griddle cake. He is carefully adjusting his grip upon the rim. Excuse me, to what end? Gazing at it? Is it fries? Saying, Oh, you're so circular, your your air bubbles, they're so intriguing. <laughs> I absolutely read over that. And when the pinch on wiki pointed out, I had to go back. I was like, holy shit, that is so funny. Your air bubbles are intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. Well, just before then, actually, is um, someone put you beneath this ferric prodigy? My coadjutor, Mr. Dixon. Of course, the astronomers, Dixon and Mason. Oh, yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Actually, that's... <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's good it's just a good little joke that. yeah that is a good one and then he gets cut off before he can even finish yeah. like elucidating that there's also just the idea that there are all these French spies who are let loose around Pennsylvania and Maryland and that they have become renowned for being such good chefs that little children beg for them to come cook in, the, <laughs> in chapter 41 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but that's about it as far as I can remember. Luke, did you have any um that you wanted to add? Um not any, yeah, that haven't been covered. I did just really love the let me find it. It's the second of the Yo Mama jokes. It's the whole thing about um I saw oh, your mother yeah. and I quiz you not drinking penny gin from a chamber pot. Yeah, that's just like it. I love that. Maybe my favorite two lines of any type of like kind of poem or you know song of any pension poem or song. Um, I mean, the fact that it rhymes is the rhyme is really nice. The cadence of it is really nice. 
Uh, I personally, I don't, I'm not a big drinker at all, uh, but I do enjoy gin and, uh, I don't know, just the, I've always been kind of fascinated with chamber pots in terms of just like how just it occurs to me that like, it seems like it would be like a horrible way to, to do that. I mean, even, uh, I think that kind of, maybe not a fascination, but just kind of disgust and kind of wondering why and how they used to do that was kind of solidified by the movie, the lighthouse. Um, the A twenty four movie, but I don't just drinking gin from a from a toilet basically is yeah is it's pretty, pretty funny and <laughs> yeah but yeah we pretty much covered everything so I would personally love a like a small collection of of more of these Yo Mama jokes because they're pretty good. There's uh-huh. only the two of them, but Honestly, damn, they're good. I feel like that might be a letter that Pinchon would respond to. Like if somebody wrote his his publisher who right? supposedly gives him that mail and they didn't want to know anything about like, you know, what does this mean or what does that yeah. mean? Or are you going to publish another one? Instead of just like, hey, can you write more rhyming Yo Mama jokes? <laughs> I feel like that's more of those. That actually might be something that he'd be like, all right. <laughs> I, you know what? I would bet he has them stashed away already. Like he just wrote a bunch and those are the just the two he decided to include. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. They, they remind me of the uh, the engineer limericks in Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. And it just, yeah. It, I just imagine that in both cases, he spent probably years of his life stretched out, just periodically coming up with these terrible limericks and terrible. Yep yo mama jokes and just has stacks and stacks like you said and would have reveled every time he wrote one just like it yeah. really savored that moment of like oh this is good oh, this is such a good one <laughs> yeah you gotta wonder is are, are these two that he includes the cream of the crop or is right it that he's tired of it is he withholding he, the best ones yeah That's does he have question. like dozens that are better that he just doesn't think we can handle <laughs> I, I, I feel yet? like I feel like that's more likely with Pinchon. <laughs> Y'all aren't ready for this shit. You don't even know. <laughs> oh my god, that's what needs to be published. Uh, like, if if anything gets put out posthumously, it needs to be mm-hmm. the jokes that we just weren't ready to handle yet. Yeah, I, I just... do wonder um, if the so there's a th- there's bathtub gin. Is there such thing as toilet gin? There well, is now. Maybe. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. Something tells me that prisoners have a hard time getting hold of juniper berries, but if they did, yeah. they could probably make toilet gin. Be yeah. a fancy prison. They already make toilet wine. <laughs> Their distillation columns up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's play this week's round of who stole Will's quote. <laughs> I had a so I had a really hard time picking a quote this week, um, which I have not had with any of the episodes that we've done previous. Um, There's like four or five different ones that I was bouncing between, and then finally, like ten minutes before we started recording, I was like, "All right, I'll go with this one," because it was the first one that I really kind of clocked as being a potential choice for a quote. And it's it is that very cinematic moment in the book when Dixon is remembering his his sort of childhood uh infatuation or romance with um with this this woman from from england that he used to know uh i just love the way that it's that it is written and the way that it's put into this section of the book really comes across as you can picture how it would be filmed in your mind where it's it's kind of fading in and out of 
maybe like flashback scenes with what's going on actually in in real time around them in the, in the casino but uh on my edition it starts on port page 415 when they were still that young he thought her bold as a boy and proud with what he had already remarked at a distance as the proudness of women he'd stayed out away from others on a lurk amongst the towers and gateways and in the shadows of autumn his great uncle george believing her a witch cast at a young jeremiah looks of sorrow and reproach but the boy had watched her out on the fell riding so fast that her amazing hair blew straight back behind her the same wind pressing her eyelids shut and her lashes into a fan and forcing her lips apart long on a personal basis with the horses the earl had given her to ride dixon sought their company now in the stables at night stroking feeding talking it over gently with them indoors one day of early sleet lurking in the damp and rodent smell of the mural passages he looked out through the pierced paint eyes of Neville's and Vane's costumed as shepherds before a castle glorified with an afternoon light that never was to see her kissing one of the chambermaids, who stood as under a spell, whilst ice sought entry, lashing at the tall windows. At nightfall, he heard her in the quarters far away singing something in Italian, Bellazza, che chiama, the sweet notes picking up the same stone passages a barking echo. Just that, that description of kind of in just one paragraph different things that he noticed about this girl and different things that he was drawn to people's reactions to his infatuation the the things that he he would do to try and like get just a little bit closer to her you know by taking Mm -hmm. care of these horses and talking to these horses and then finally that you know sort of almost death of innocence moment when he sees that that you know she's she's kissing somebody else it's not him um, and is is even in in one of these cases a woman shock horror, not a man. Um, I, I think it's a it's a very and obviously there's the the, the funny line in there about her looking like her her face is is being pressed <laughs> into a fan, which the fact that that's happening while she's riding a horse is even funnier. <laughs> yep. um, it, it's this it's this great combination of of you know Pinchonian humor with that line, but also kind of uh, the a sweetness of 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 the innocence of youth when when you're kind of quote unquote in love with somebody even though you don't actually yeah. know what that's like yeah luke do you want to you want to go next yeah so my quote is the one i was talking about earlier the angel quote uh so i they do that lad and they drink and smoke and dance and gamble with all thought everyone knew that some might even define an angel as a being who's powerful enough not to be destroyed by desire and all its true and terrible dimensions why a drop of their porter would kill the hardiest drinker among ye they smoke substances whose most distant scent would asphyxiate us their dancing floors extend for leagues uh and then it just goes on from there i do really love that the thought everyone knew that thing which i have to imagine is a is a joke on uh on pension slash cherry coke's part um yeah that whole paragraph is just probably my favorite part of this section it is really good so mine actually is is the paragraph right after that uh, the the closing paragraph of this of this chapter um why is it that we honor the great thieves of whitehall for acts that in whitechapel would merit hanging why admire the one sort of thief and despise the other i suggest tis because of the scale of the crime what we of the mobility love to watch is any of the great motrices 
greed, lust, revenge, taken out on all, taken out of all measure, brought quite past the scale of the everyday world, approaching what we always knew were the true dimensions of desire. Let Antony lose the world for Cleopatra, to be sure, not dick his day's wages at the tavern. Um, as someone who loves a good, like a heist story, um, I really appreciated that that line that we we tend to be okay with with you know crimes when they affect those who already have a lot because they're what's being taken away from them they don't really either they don't care about it or it's just not much to them um so they they have everything already so why why does it matter if we take from them but you don't want to see that same thing happen to someone who has nothing and, and just keeps losing more um i just thought that was a really interesting way to close out the the chapter and was just a great a great observation yeah and that last sentence is really really beautifully phrased yeah so i have i have eluded your pursuits <laughs> so i'm actually i'm going with a, a somewhat longer section from 444 and 445 a few wrinkles to be smoothed messrs darby and cope have left till the last minute the question of who's to go before and who behind upon the chain the phrase is good enough and more or less must be discouraged from the outset. Rules of precedence for Dixon's circumferenter have to be worked out, principally that, in case of conflict, it must ever defer to the sector, astronomy before magnetism. At last, Mr. Cope pulls up his bob and gathers and stows his plumb line, thus removing his end of the chain from the postmarked west, proceeding then in that direction across the snowy field to Mr. Darby's former station, detachment, the beginning of the west. So they set off. The chain a jingle, wagons a rumble, farm geese a blare, heading into farmland with a quiet roll to it, watched by deer and kine, under the usual injunctions against trampling garden patches or molesting orchards, the instruments with a tent of their own, stranger than anything the party expects to see between here and little Christiania, which isn't much anyway, owing to the trees, for which eleven more axemen hire on the second week. I just love uh, how everything kind of starts... Uh, coming together, how everything starts rolling in motion in mm -hmm. kind of synchronicity and how that whole section feels like that. Yeah, that's a great selection there. Well, we got our weekly... Oh, I'm sorry, before we go there, our most pension part. Um, I I would put forward that it's the Yo Mama jokes. Um this isn't the first time that they've happened. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. Chronologically speaking, it is. But they, we do get them again in Against the Day and Inherent Vice. Um, so it's kind of a later era Pinchon thing. But it's one that I'm absolutely here for. I love it. Um, I'm I'm going to interpret the, the term most Pinchon part of the chapter very literally and say the land developer. Um, yeah okay the the just the way that yeah uh, upon seeing the land developer for like 30 seconds takes and she's like i'm gonna go <laughs> kill that guy uh it, it doesn't have to be here it could be somewhere else but i'm gonna kill him um that that felt just like pinch on not being able to resist putting himself into the book yeah. um and so that that would be my choice i think my choice is probably the the part about the uh, husband and wife getting divorced because 
<laughs> it does treat a very like a very serious subject, especially back then. I would imagine. Oh uh, yeah. Which is which is divorce mm -hmm. uh, in a very like lighthearted and comedic way, um, which is definitely like kind of a, a specialty for Pynchon uh, is treating like very kind of serious um, things, serious aspects of life with a kind of levity that a lot of other people um, wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't treat the the subject with um it did kind of occur to me that like a lesser writer a different writer would would like spend a whole novel like writing about like the husband like pushing the the house uphill into into the north into pennsylvania to like so for them to keep together or something you know like something kind of sappy like that but pension is yeah. kind of you know has them get divorced like through jokes basically i was considering that one actually but i've uh i think the the most pinching part of this section to me is the description of Felipe, the electric eel, pretending to like lunge at and attack. Oh yeah, Professor Vohm, as though that's like what an what an eel would do. Like it's yeah. emulating a tiger. And with its with its knife like teeth that they or dirk like teeth is what it was described as. Which uh, I mean I. I think they do have sharp teeth, but they are tiny. They are tiny, yeah. Yeah, everyone's homework is to go look at a photo of an eel. All of our listeners, <laughs> just go, just go look at what an eel just, looks like. Yeah, they're they're cool. Electric, otherwise, just an eel. And they Mori. they, from what I saw, they very very rarely actually have killed anyone. So, don't be scared of them. Just like I mean, with any animal, just respect it appreciate yeah. it and keep it your keep your distance you'll be fine just go gaze into the eyes of a long and skinny catfish yep and then have a transcendental moment of clarity and mm -hmm. go map out uh lines of latitude yeah all right so we did get our uh our weekly email from brett which is coming more and more to be something i just look forward to like with this one i do just want to point out came to us really quick brett really was on it with getting back to us. Um, so I really, I like that. He's so, uh, so eager to, to take in the new episodes and, and get back to us with, uh, additional information. Um, so Kate, if you wouldn't mind, uh, reading his emails. Yeah, absolutely. Hey y'all. Great, great episode this week so far. I'm only about halfway through, so I may have one or two late notes, but so far I have almost nothing. The fact that you paused the show to go write this email, Brett, just, just, Big props. Yep. Um, you're right. One, you're right on about Wilkes and Montague, Earl of Sandwich. Two, those folks, Masons and later Dixons, hanging out with in New York are Sons of Liberty, or at least very closely aligned with them. That'll get more important later when the novel turns its attention to the Stamp Act. Three, you all had it with regard to the opera. It's a duck joke. Margarita means Daisy in Italian, so it's Daisy and Donald Duck. Took me forever to solve that one. Michael Durda has it in a book I can't recall the name of at, a, at the moment. So glad you discussed the end of chapter 39 and mentioned Dixon's pursuit of happiness line. One big thing stands out to me about these moments, and they tie into your discussion about getting desensitized even to truly horrible things when they become routine. Dixon's the more magnetic character for me. He's really fun. It's easy to see a kind of nobility in his fun too, especially in his hunger, often literal, for new experiences. Yet, those two moments from chapter 39 suggest that there are limits to pleasure-seeking as a response to injustice. 
In the case of the Chapter 39 closing, it corresponds very closely to Dixon's experience at the Cape Town brothel and Cornelius' room. Recall that he sees Ostra there. It takes him some time to recognize her, and when he does, his thoughts turn immediately to he and Mason fighting over her romantic or just sexual attentions. So, this isn't the first time he's failed to see the depth of human suffering on display right in front of him. In the case of Pursuit of Happiness, it's hilarious, of course, but Dixon's trying to give a kind of, for everyone, a political toast. Jefferson quickly takes it, and we know it's going to be used in a very political cause. It's going to become the DNA of the whole American project, a project which, for all its successes, is also associated with some horrifically ugly things. I think Pinchon's really clued into the idea of pleasure-seeking, given his experience with the idealism of the 60s and the various ways it seemed to fail. This is a big topic in Vineland. Gravity's Rainbow was originally supposed to be called Mindless Pleasures, and I think there's a lot of hay to be made when it comes to this theme and Dixon. He's so, so fun. So Leo. So charming. But often in ways that make him easily distractible or even co-optable. Gravity's Rainbow features a lot of characters whose desires for fun or idealism make them easily manipulated. The complicity of Mason and Dixon with slavery and human suffering, how they deal with it, whether they realize it, what happens in moments when they see it clearly, how quickly it fades, etc. That is the central question of the novel for me. I'm always curious to see what others are thinking on that front. This is one of my favorite episodes so far. Really great discussion, as always. Looking forward to next Friday. Thank you, Brett. Yes, thank you again, as always. We really appreciate all the feedback that we get from you. It's, it's meant a lot, I think, to all of us. At yeah, this point. absolutely. So that uh, wraps up chapters uh, 41 through 45. Our next episode will be on chapters 46 through 50. Um, as always, we really do appreciate your, your time and, and your listening to us. Um, we would ask that you send us any questions, comments, ideas, uh, suggestions, anything like that. Uh, you can email us at mappingthezonepod at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter at PinchonPod, uh, so you can get us either there or email. Uh, and we look forward to hearing from you all, and we will see you all next week. Bye. See ya. Bye.